On the night of June 7, 1941, a small group of Jewish fighters lay still on the border with Lebanon. They were the tip of the spear of an invasion force that was poised to strike the next morning, and their job was to gather last-minute intelligence and then attack across the line. Lying in the darkness together were three Jewish fighters, getting some of their first combat experience. All three would soon become iconic Israeli leaders, but they didn't know it yet. In the darkness, they waited to attack. Now, they were not attacking Arabs. They were attacking the French on behalf of the British and alongside troops from Australia. Yes, you heard that right. The British attacked the French in the Middle East at the height of World War II. I know the British and the French are supposed to be allies. We all learned this in school. Don't worry. I'm going to explain. With Germany closing in, Palestine surrounded, the Zionist dream nearly destroyed by the White Paper, and now stories coming out about the destruction of European Jewry, the Jews of Palestine were in a particular mood. They were in a mood to fight. And so at this moment, our three boys, Yigal Alon, Moshe Dayan, and Yitzhak Rabin, waited on the border of Lebanon to launch the first attack of an elite Jewish fighting unit. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In 1941, Nazi Germany was doing really well, and the British were freaked out. Germany successfully invaded North Africa and were rapidly closing in on Egypt from the west, and that's alarming because Egypt is Britain's essential stronghold in the Middle East, and they have to hang on to it. Meanwhile, there's trouble in Lebanon and Syria too. The French are there, but not just any French. After Germany invaded France, half of France split off to ally themselves with the Nazis. They're called the Vichy, and it's these Vichy French who are in control of Lebanon and Syria. The British are worried that the Vichy are going to allow the German army to use their territory to invade Egypt. And what's between Lebanon and Egypt, of course, is Palestine. And who's in Palestine? Well, mostly Arabs. But the Palestinian Arabs are also dating Nazi Germany at this point. While the Zionists have been engaging in diplomacy with the British, the Grand Mufti, Amin al-Husseini, has been doing the same thing with the Germans. Hitler and Mussolini promised to recognize Arab independent countries and to help the Arabs eliminate the Jewish national home in Palestine. So all those years of the British selling out the Jews to appease the Arabs in Palestine, it pretty much got them nothing. So we've got Germans in North Africa, Fiji French in Lebanon and Syria, and hostile Arabs all over the place. The British are surrounded. All of these factors make Palestine super strategically important to the British and under very serious threat of invasion. If only the British knew of some other non-Arab population in Palestine who were really eager to fight Hitler. Except that things were not going well with the Jews either. The Yishuv is still really angry about the White Paper of 1939, which all but closed off Palestine to Jewish immigration and pretty much ended the goal of creating a Jewish homeland there. The Yishuv is dealing with a difficult clandestine rescue operation, Aliyah Bet, to bring Jewish refugees in from Europe without getting caught by the British. And otherwise, the Zionist movement is pretty well divided. The two Jewish defense organizations, the Haganah and the Irgun, hate each other to the point of threatening to go to war. The revisionist Zionists are in turmoil with the sudden death of their leader, Vladimir Jabotinsky, in 1940. The labor Zionists have David Ben-Gurion, 
who has emerged as the kind of bold, courageous, relentless wartime consigliere that the Jews need. And hovering over all this is something else, something that started as a fear and then became a rumor and then turned into a story and now was starting to get definitive proof. Jews were being systematically murdered, possibly by the tens of thousands in Eastern Europe. So the Zionists were desperate to get into the fight. began, various leaders of the Yishuv, most importantly those of the Haganah and the Irgun, got together and said, listen, we kind of hate each other, but right now we have to put all that aside to focus on fighting this war. Ben-Gurion proclaimed his famous policy, we're going to fight the white paper as if Hitler didn't exist, and we're going to fight Hitler as if the white paper didn't exist. Last episode I talked about the first in the form of the Aliyah Bet rescue operation, but to their credit, the Yishuv also realized they had to do the second part at the same time. Their goal was to get Jews fighting for the British, and beyond that, to organize a specifically Jewish fighting force within the British army. In this unified front, they had a lot of enemies, but also one big ally. Their opponents were the British government, and more specifically the British military. Because if you're the British, there's four reasons why you're not excited about this plan. Now one is plain old anti-Semitism. I haven't talked about it much, but it was there. There were plenty of people in the British elite, especially the military and the colonial office, who just didn't like the Jews. The second reason is not wanting to piss off the Arabs to the point where they launch another uprising. Yes, they are siding with the Germans, but otherwise are keeping fairly quiet, and the British didn't want to provoke any more rioting. The third reason was not wanting to train up a Jewish combat militia that would probably just turn against them when the war ended. And you can't really blame the British for that one, because that's pretty much exactly what happened. And fourth, the British didn't want a repeat of what happened in World War I. The Zionists turned their loyalty to Britain into a reward, the Balfour Declaration of 1917, recognizing a Jewish homeland. And now the Jews were hoping to repeat that trick and get the white paper revoked. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, made clear his view. The Jews, he said, think that the defeat of Germany will necessarily entail the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, which is unfortunate. Indeed, also unfortunate for Chamberlain, is that Winston Churchill replaced him as Prime Minister in 1940, and Churchill had been a longtime supporter of Zionism, nearly always standing with the Jewish community, and he hated the white paper. This pledge of a home of refugees, of an asylum, he said, it was not made to the Jews of Palestine, but to the Jews outside Palestine. He considered the white paper a gross breach of faith. He said it better than that, but I can't do a sexy Churchill British accent. Churchill looked favorably on the idea of establishing a Jewish army, if for no other reason than it would free up British soldiers to be transferred from Palestine to the fighting in Europe. He was also persuaded by a good relationship with my birthday buddy, Chaim Weizmann, who convinced the Prime Minister that the Jews had the human right to fight in their own defense. But still, Churchill was thwarted by the opposition of the military leadership, and let's be honest, he had bigger fish to fry. So nothing came of developing a Jewish army in Palestine, but that didn't stop thousands of Jews from signing up with the British army directly. They did, and fought all over the Middle East and Europe. They even formed small, exclusively Jewish battalions with Jewish officers. But by 1941, 
with the German army bearing down on Egypt and the Vichy French threatening from Lebanon, the British desperately needed more help in Palestine to defend against a possible invasion. They turned to the Haganah, since the Haganah were the ones with the necessary military experience and equipment. But the problem was that the Haganah was too small. Most of their best fighters had already enlisted in the army. So with the British help, the Haganah formed a new organization, a special ops unit that could carry out offensive and defensive operations. In May of 1941, they created what they called the Strike Companies, or in Hebrew, the Palmach. That is the Palmach anthem you're hearing. The Palmach is one of the most legendary organizations in Israeli history, even though it never had more than a couple thousand fighters and only lasted about seven years. At its creation, there was probably about a hundred fighters involved. But so many prominent Israelis emerged from the Palmach that it turned out to be something of a breeding ground for Israel's political, military, and even cultural elite. Some of its most accomplished writers, poets, and playwrights served in the Palmach. The Palmach had a certain ethos. The stereotypical Palmach fighter was a kibbutznik, native to Palestine and raised on the sun-drenched ideals of socialism and the values of manual labor. They were fit, fluent in Hebrew, secular, lefty, exactly the kind of new Jew that those early Zionist tree branches had envisioned creating in the future homeland. In her biography of Yigal Alon, the historian Anita Shapira goes even deeper, describing him and his fellow fighters as neither highbrow nor cultivated, but a young brigade of daring volunteers. There was about them a callow rawness, an upstart's brashness, the shallowness of men of action, the intolerance of the self-absorbed. Yet they were also capable of openness and high-flying idealism, extraordinary acts of friendship and comradeship, reticence and loftiness, humility and dedication. They had a measure of pride that took the form of arrogance and over the years was widely translated into independence and self-sufficiency. I don't know about you, but I can think of a zillion Israelis I know who fit that description. Like the rugged individualism of the American ideal, the Palmach generation had an outside impact on the Israeli psyche that persists to this day. And my birthright participants don't realize it, but every time we're sitting around by the campfire in the desert, telling stories and playing guitar while drinking tea and coffee, we are engaging in a time-honored Palmach ritual called kumzitz. It's a Yiddish expression, meaning come, sit down. And while sitting around a campfire isn't new, the Palmach made it into a ritualistic tradition that has been adopted throughout Israeli culture from the army, to holiday celebrations, to birthright. Now, just after its creation in the spring of 1941, the Palmach was very quickly put to good use. The British, super anxious that the Nazis were going to use Vichy French territory in Lebanon and Syria to launch an invasion of Palestine, decided to attack first. They cut a deal with the Haganah to use the Palmach as a forward reconnaissance unit, since the local fighters knew the terrain and oftentimes Arabic. Their job was to guide Australian troops into position. Once the invasion began, the Palmach would be charged with sabotage, ambush, and defensive operations. And so we find our three Palmach fighters perched on one side of the Litani River on June 7th, 1941, ready to go.
What's fascinating about this moment, why we really ought to know it, is not that this battle is taking place, but rather the fact that these three guys are in it together. This moment is huge. Remember it. It's like, think about being a fly on the wall the first time that Washington, Jefferson, and Adams all met up in a room together, and what you would know about that future that they didn't yet. Yigal Alon, age 23, Moshe Dayan, age 26, and Yitzhak Rabin, age 19, represent the next generation that is going to shape Israel as a country and a society. They are the first of the Sabra generation of Israeli leaders. A Sabra is the term for a native-born Israeli. Ben-Gurion, Weitzman, Jabotinsky, nearly all the leaders we've been discussing so far came from Europe. But these boys grew up completely immersed in the Zionist tree branches that have been created for them, the new Jews. They know no other home but the land of Israel, no other language but Hebrew. They are the warrior gods of labor Zionism. Lefty socialists, kibbutzniks deeply connected to the land, with a shovel in one hand and a rifle in the other. They are the first of the rebirth of Jewish history, the muscular, suntan fighters of the Zionist dream. They stand opposite the pale-faced, weak Jews of the European ghetto that the Zionists so disdain. The Zionist movement has not yet secured a Jewish homeland. It hasn't established a Jewish state. But it has achieved the creation of these boys. Their lives won't just be extraordinary, but legendary. And these three boys aren't intellectuals like Ben-Gurion, Weitzman, and Jabotinsky. They're not going to write manifestos of Zionist philosophy or debate the nature of Jewish existence deep into the night. Instead, they will exemplify a unique kind of Israeli iconoclast that begins with them, the warrior-turned-peacemaker. Their lives will represent that dichotomy, triumphant military leadership and aggressive, unapologetic self-defense, with an emphasis later in their lives on diplomacy, dialogue, and deep respect for the Arabs and their society. All three of them will eventually turn their military victories into efforts at making peace through politics. Yigal Alon and Yitzhak Rabin will both serve as prime ministers. All three will have controversial careers, and all three will leave the stage before their work is done. Poised to strike that night in June 1941, they represent the beginnings of a new generation that will not only see Israel through its greatest achievements and some of its darkest hours, but will be the architects of those moments. But one bullet, the following morning, almost ended it all. At the start of the invasion, Yigal alone was in command of one of the Palmach units. Moshe Dayan was in command of the other, with the young Yitzhak Rabin at his side. Moshe Dayan seized two bridges and then captured a Vichy French police station. He grabbed a pair of binoculars and went up to the roof to have a look around. A French sniper, lying in wait, spotted him, aimed, and fired, shooting Diane in the face. But in one of those crazy things that you only see in the movies, the bullet hit the binoculars, passed through one of the eyepieces, and was stopped before actually hitting him. The glass shards and bits of metal took out his left eye, and it took hours to get him any sort of medical assistance. For the rest of his life, he had to wear a black eye patch over the empty socket. It greatly distressed him, made him horribly self-conscious, but it also made him probably the most recognizable Israeli in history. The black eye patch was the prop that made his mythology that much more potent. It turned him into a demigod of the highest admiration. You may not know a thing about Moshe Dayan, but when you see a picture of a guy with a black eye patch, you know it's him. It appears the eye patch was sold at auction a few years ago for $75,000. 
the invasion of Lebanon was successful and the Palmach recognized for its military capabilities. But the threat of invasion from the Germans in North Africa was still very real. The Palmach, reflecting the Zionist movement's emphasis on Jewish self-defense at all costs, prepared a contingency plan for if the Nazis took Palestine. It was called the Carmel Plan. In the event that the Nazis occupied Palestine, the Palmach planned to turn the Carmel, a mountain ridge that towers above the city of Haifa, into a safe haven and guerrilla base. Tens of thousands of Jews would be moved there to live in hideouts that would be pre-supplied with enough food and water to last for years. The Carmel would have a Jewish government, British military equipment, manufacturing firms to make weapons, and even small farms. Several hundred Palmach fighters were specifically trained to carry out sabotage and other guerrilla attacks on the Nazi occupiers before retreating back into the safety of the heavily defended Carmel Ridge. It stood in contrast to what the perception was about the European Jews' response to the Nazis, that is, to go like sheep to the slaughter. A terribly unfair accusation, but it reflected the Zionist mentality that these new Jews were tough and fearless fighters who were prepared to defend Jewish lives at all costs. For those of you who know the story of Masada, yes, the comparison was not lost on the Palmachniks either. The Carmel Plan was never carried out, of course, since Germany never did invade Palestine. In the summer of 1942, the Allies defeated the Germans in Egypt and then drove them out of North Africa altogether. The British decided that they now no longer needed the Palmach and ordered it disbanded. They even took back all the guns they had given out. So the Palmach broke into the British arsenal, stole all their weapons back, and went underground, along with the Haganah. The British once again now considered them both an illegal militia. And then the Palmach did something that was really clever. They took all their fighters and apportioned them out to every kibbutz in Palestine. It helped keep the Palmach underground, since the fighters could now just blend in with the regular kibbutzniks, working the land and living there like normal people. And it also meant that now every kibbutz had a built-in defense unit, and that if one kibbutz came under attack, they could all call up other fighters from nearby to come help. The British were right to worry that training up a Jewish fighting force might come back someday to haunt them. The Palmach had become a very effective fighting force, with highly specialized military training, a lot of combat experience, and local fighters who knew the land, knew the languages, and knew exactly how the British military operated. This would someday prove very useful indeed. Okay, I have a few minutes left. I can tell another story. The Haganah and its special operations strike force, the Palmach, they weren't the only ones working for the British. The Irgun was too. After aggressively fighting the Arabs and the British during the Arab Revolt at the end of the 1930s, the Irgun now found itself without a clear mission. Jabotinsky had died suddenly in 1940, leaving the organization without its spiritual leader and top strategist. The palace intrigues that had split the revisionist Zionist when the Irgun was created in the first place came back. But with the onset of the war, the Irgun saw an opportunity to refocus its mission. They decided to end all their operations against the British and to instead fight with them. And like with the Palmach, the British in the early stages of the war were happy to have the help. If the Haganah was like the regular army and the Palmach, the special forces, then the Irgun became a kind of covert CIA unit highly trained by the British to be used for sensitive clandestine operations. David Raziel was the Irgun commander, a close confidant of Jabotinsky who had helped found the Irgun. 
He and a few fellow Irgunists soon received a top-secret assignment to infiltrate Iraq. Okay, long story short, pro-Nazi forces staged a coup in Iraq, which until then had been aligned with the British. The German Air Force moved a bunch of bombers to an airbase outside Baghdad, which made the British really nervous indeed, and David Raziel and his Irgun sidekicks were given the mission of sabotaging the airfield in May of 1941. They agreed on the condition that the British allow them to assassinate Amin al-Husseini, who was hiding out in Iraq. The British didn't say yes to this, but they didn't say no either. However, the Irgun never got the chance. Raziel and a couple of hand-picked fighters snuck into Iraq and joined up a British recon mission to check out the airbase. But while returning to the British lines a few minutes later, a German aircraft bombed their car. David Raziel was killed instantly. Two days later, the British retook Iraq. Al-Husseini made his way to Berlin, where he met up with Hitler and became an avid collaborator with the Nazis. The point of this story is that the Irgun wasn't this monolithic terrorist organization that we saw operating during the Arab Revolt, but it was an organization dedicated to fighting and to Jewish self-defense. In aligning with the British early in the war, the Irgun took advantage, like the Palmach, of the training and the combat experience that the British offered. They fought on multiple fronts in the war, from Iraq to North Africa to Italy, yet they were still casting about for a clear purpose, now having lost, in addition to Jabotinsky, their other most seasoned leader. And they got one. A new figure emerged. He belongs to the same generation as our three boys, and like them, is a legendary leader whose influence on Israeli society and global Judaism cannot be overstated. But unlike Yigal alone, Moshe Dayan, and Yitzhak Rabin, this guy came from Poland, was religious, and he came to Palestine with steely-eyed passion, desperation born of trauma, outrage, and a remarkable sense of purpose. He too will become a warrior peacemaker like the three boys, and one of the most influential Israeli politicians in history, but on the other side of the political spectrum. A right-wing revisionist Zionist, not a lefty labor Zionist. He will take over the Irgun, and in battling with the British and with the mainstream Zionists, will be a major force driving the Jewish community right down the road to the creation of a Jewish state. His name is Menachem Begin. Now Menachem Begin and his fellow Irgunists were utterly frustrated. The Jews were being systematically murdered in Europe. The British refused to relent on the harsh conditions of the White Paper of 1939, making mass rescue all but impossible. Begin was convinced that the only solution was the immediate creation of a Jewish state that would make such rescue achievable. But for that to happen, the British mandate would have to end. So Menachem Begin made it his mission to end it. Having forced the Haganah, the Palmach, and the Irgun underground, the British no longer had much of a working relationship with the Yishuv. The way forward was unclear. So in the midst of World War II, Menachem Begin declared war on the British. That's next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>